The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2. Yay! <laughs> Our mini series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblind, joined by my co host, Dr. Eric Kurzhanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss teaching the physical exam with Dr. Andre Mansour. Before we get started with that, Eero, will you remind the audience what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Mansoor, tonight, and we cover the power of the physical exam, how to focus it, anticipate what you're going to hear or see, and really hone yours and the learner's skills. Dr. Andre Mansoor is an associate professor of medicine in Portland, Oregon. He is passionate about teaching, as you will hear on this episode, and has developed an effective framework system for approaching common problems encountered in the field of internal medicine. This system serves as the foundation for his textbook, Frameworks for Internal Medicine. He also helped create physicaldiagnosispdx.com, an amazing website with physical diagnosis resources. Just a quick reminder that this episode is available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So So without further further ado, (laughs) let's get get to to it. Hi, Dr. Mansoor. Are you okay with us calling you Andre for this recording? Please call me Andre, yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on the show. We'd like to start with some rapid-fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Uh, Sure. So, you know, I would say that I'm a 39-year-old internist slash hospitalist who's, um, you know, into physical examination and diagnostic reasoning. And uh, outside of medicine, I like, um, I'm into sports and you know, now I'm into landscape and gardening. Wonderful. What are you working on lately? I'm working on a path, like a walkway from my uh, patio area to my deck. Bricks or stones or? I'm doing stones. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do uh, these kind of irregular stones. I really dig the natural look. Um, so that's what I'm going for. I dug it out uh, last week. And then just today, I uh, got the gravel delivered, and so I'm kind of laying my base down. So I put some gravel down and really compacted it. And uh, next up is some finer kind of gravel, and then I'm picking up the stones tomorrow. And uh, we'll lay them down and see see how well I did. Very cool. I I bought some ferns to plant at our house, and I made it like two inches into the dirt with my shovel. And I was like, this is way too hard for me. I'm going (laughs) to... I'm going to make my partner well, take over here. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because uh, I did a deck last summer, but I didn't do it. I had somebody do it and I immediately felt guilty for some reason. I don't know why, but I'm like, I should have done this myself. <laughs> so, so I felt like the walkway, the path was like a really nice entry level thing that I could do that I could feel good about. And then that gives me an excuse. I'm like, oh, well, I did the path. So now I can just, you know, have somebody else do whatever else I want done. So, so we'll see. That's awesome. Excited to excited to see photos in the future. I will and, show you. Um, well, maybe, Andre, what is one book, and maybe it's about, you know, landscaping, uh, movie or show that you've recently enjoyed, or maybe not so recently? Funny. I do have these landscaping books that I've been... What? Stan, <laughs> does it say stonescaping? Yeah, this one's stonescaping, the art and craft of stonescaping. Um, and then this one is uh, Garden Stone. But yeah, these are really good books uh, that have helped me. In this, nice. uh, Stonescaping in this almost thing. makes me want to also create a path in my future. <laughs> you should. It's actually not that hard. I'll give you some pointers. But beyond the, the landscaping books, my favorite book, well, I'll tell you my favorite book and I'll tell you the book that I just finished last week. So I, my favorite book is The Count of Monte Cristo, um, which is funny because it's also my favorite movie, which most I think most of the time people who love a book hate the movie version or vice versa. Um, but in this case, uh, I love them both. And, um, so those are my, that's probably my favorite, favorite book and favorite movie. And I just finished, um, A Thousand Splendid Sons, uh, last week from the author of, uh, The Kite Runner, which was, uh, was really good. Um, uh, heavy, heavy subject matter, but, uh, but it was very good. 
Do you have something that you feel like you've changed in your practice or that you are working on that's kind of a goal to change, maybe a teaching or communication technique or just kind of approach that you take towards patients or learners? You know, one thing I started doing a couple of years ago that I've uh, maybe lost a little um, traction on, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to regain is calling patients after they leave. So I'm a hospitalist, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, that's one of the drawbacks of being a hospitalist is that we don't we kind of lose that continuity that the, you know, uh, primary care uh, doctors or clinicians have. And uh, it's one thing that I've been trying to get back in some way. And I think we can as hospitalists because we can keep in touch with patients. And I and I and I do some, you know, I. I've actually developed some relationships with patients over the years, so we can still keep in touch. But, you know, I think it's really important to, to kind of get that feedback after they leave the hospital. You know, did we get the diagnosis right? Uh, did the treatment continue to work or did it work uh, eventually or did it not work? Uh, do we get things wrong? I think it's really a nice way to kind of um, not only, you know, establish these relationships with patients, which I think are really important to us. Um, but also just for our own learning and um, growth. I think it's really a nice uh, sort of thing to do. So so recently I've been trying to, to get back into that. Um. Well, in that vein of feedback, Andre, I wonder if you could share maybe the most or some of the most meaningful advice or feedback that you've received in your career or during your training. Yeah, um, I have... Uh, the one thing I will say, I've received a lot um, and many things come to mind, but the one that I will point out or highlight is um, using the medical record to our advantage. Um, and what do I mean by that? It's sort of using it to create kind of a journal of interesting cases or important cases that we've seen over the years. Um, there's a way you can kind of create, uh, we use Epic uh, in my institution. And so there's a, there's a nice way to create kind of the sticky notes um, and you can actually create a column within. So I have like an interesting patient list. I have a follow-up list, um, odd diagnoses list. I have a physical diagnosis list. And so I, you know, we'll transfer these patients over to those, to those uh, respective lists. And, um, what's nice is that when you click on a list, not only do you see, you know, their, their name and their age and uh, what have you, but you can also see, um, your sticky note. And so I can make notes on there that, you know, like aortic regurgitation with Quinky's pulse and Corrigan sign or, you know, interesting case of Churg Strauss. Um, so I can really kind of keep track of, of these cases. And I've gotten this um, this advice from uh, two individuals that I really respect. One is Pete Sullivan, uh, who works with me at OHSU, um, who runs the, the website with me. And then also Gurpreet Dollywall. Um, he talks about this a lot and kind of having this diary, so to speak, um, and, you know, you're really, we all know this as clinicians that, that experience is so key for us. And your experience is only as good as what you can remember from your experiences. You know, if you've taken care of Church Strauss before, but you don't remember much about the case, it's not going to help you the next time you see it. But if you, if you keep this list and you refer back to it and it'll keep that kind of case fresh in your mind. Um, and so th- that will then be applicable when you need it to be. So I, I found that to be really solid advice. Um, and it's helped me out a lot. I love that advice. Yeah. And we, we have had Gifrit on in an earlier show with um, the regular curbsiders and here with curbsiders teach. And he did highlight that in, in one of the shows. So I, I think a, a great recommendation. Uh, Ira, do you want to hop into picks of the week? Sure, Molly. Thanks. So my pick of the week is the book Grief is Love, Living with Loss by Marissa Renee Lee. And as someone who is somewhat grief illiterate and now trying to find a toolkit on how to adapt after recent events in my life, I have so appreciated Marissa's very wise way of describing what it means to kind of acknowledge and authentically create space for grief and grief's complicated feelings. Um, Marissa actually speaks from her experience losing her mom, losing a pregnancy, losing her cousin, uh, during COVID and the lessons that she learned about grief, especially its unique impact in the Black community and how to love the one that you lost with the same depth that you did when they were alive. And so I actually read someone's review of the book as um, what it feels like to exhale or to be hugged or to be told that everything is going to be all right and actually believe it. And so I just wanted to share that with the listeners because honestly, I agree Um, Marissa goes through the process of loving through loss, kind of cultivating kindness, flexibility, reevaluating your needs during the grief process, and just trying to extend grace to yourself and to the complicated emotions you might be feeling. So I um, personally am incredibly grateful for this beautiful memoir because Marissa really reminds you to feel less alone in grief and humanizes the experience. So Grief is Love, The Living with Loss by Marissa Renee Lee is my pick of the week. That sounds wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to go with a novel called The Taste of Ginger by Mansi Shah. 
Uh, it's a book about an Indian American woman and just kind of her navigating, trying to have a an American life and an American career, and then also what that means in her family, uh, who is more traditionally Indian, and some of her Indian relatives abroad, and just kind of her balancing career and life and identities. And it just made me really reflect on kind of what's most important and and what we should be focusing our energy on and our our intent on. I love that. Yeah. Well, let's hop into our topic here today of physical examination skills and teaching physical examinations. So our case today, I, Molly, am a mid-year attending who wants to do a better job teaching physical exam skills to my learners. I don't always feel confident on the exam myself, and I want to know what kind of resources there are that I could brush up on my skills and how to feel more confident about teaching the physical exam. To start us off, Andre, um, you are a very special person who's interested in physical exam teaching, and we should highlight that not all of us are like you. How did you become a physical exam aficionado or now a physical exam evangelist? Well, you know, Molly, I think I think it really, um, for me, the moment that that I sort of started to become really interested in this was when I saw just how powerful it is. Um, and I, I can remember, um, you know, there's there's been multiple cases over the years that have kind of driven that that point home for me. But there was one one case in particular, and I mentioned Pete Sullivan, a colleague at OHSU. I remember we were seeing a patient together, and it wasn't a patient on our service. Um, somebody had just mentioned that this patient has some interesting findings. You should go you should go see him. So we went to see the patient, and uh, we were looking at at the patient's um, you know neck veins, and and Pete kind of had had made some you know made note of some you know, abnormal quality to it. And uh, as he you know was was continuing to examine the patient, he asked him a question. He said, you know, when did you when did you have radiation therapy? And the patient kind of looked surprised and and said, well, how, you know, how did you know I had radiation? And 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 Pete kind of pointed out. Um, uh, his his radiation tattoo markers on his chest. Uh, the radiation oncologist will make these you know tattoos to to kind of outline the radiation field, and he put that together. That was a really important finding because the patient ended up having constrictive pericarditis from radiation therapy to the chest, and his neck vein finding that I alluded to earlier uh, was uh, something called Friedrich sign, which is a uh, you know a, a sharp and deep Y descent in the in the uh, jugular venous pulse waveform. And he kind of used both of those clues to to kind of make a diagnosis of constrictive pericarditis. And I was, you know, really astounded when when I was there with him at the bedside, seeing that in action, and that really captured my attention. And you know, after that, uh, you know, I've just seen case after case uh, where you know patients have physical findings that are that are there waiting to be discovered um, that really would have would have changed things for the patient. It would have given them a diagnosis much sooner. Oftentimes they go on these, you know, clinicians will go on these long and circuitous diagnostic adventures. Um, and that comes, you know, at, at an expense to patients, um, you know, not only literally because it, it costs money when uh, we don't have a diagnosis and we're continuing to, to work them up uh, potentially unnecessarily. And also figuratively, because the time where they're suffering without a diagnosis and without the opportunity to move forward with treatment. Um, and so uh, I've seen this time and time again. And, um, you know, just thinking about a case I saw maybe two years ago or so of a young woman who um, she uh, initially presented to her primary care physician with kind of a swollen foot. The dorsum of her foot was red and hot and swollen. And um, she was told it was kind of overuse and just rest and ice it. It'll get better. And, and it actually did get better after about a week or so. But then it kind of moved to her one of her knees. Same type of thing, swelling, pain, redness. And um, she thought, okay, maybe if I just ice it and rest, it'll get better. It didn't get better. So she ended up going to the emergency room. Um, and uh, there, they, uh, they tapped her knee and it, it was inflammatory. And they assumed that it was a, you know, septic arthritis, even though there were no organisms. And she ended up go undergoing a, a washout procedure of her knee. And then it didn't get better after that. So what happened? She gets a second washout procedure of her knee. Um, and then she gets transferred to us. And, and uh, you know, when I'm looking at her, I have a habit of looking at the hands. And I was actually looking, I was like, oh, okay, it's kind of like a migratory oligoarthritis, inflammatory arthritis. So I was, you know, I had some hypotheses in my head and, and one of those hypotheses led me to her hands. And so I was looking at her fingernails. I was actually looking for a different finding than what I found. I didn't see, you know, nail bed pitting, but what I did see was uh, this, I, I didn't know what it was at the time, I, I, but it wasn't normal. I knew that. And uh, I ended up looking it up and it turns out it was something called the oil drop sign, which is another finding of psoriatic arthritis. 
And um, I, I looked in the back of her back of her neck and uh, they're hiding, you know, underneath her hair. You have to lift her hairline up, uh, you know, was a psoriatic plaque. And then she also had one behind her ear. So she had psoriasis, you know, she had these plaques that were there uh, for some time and they were all they were all missed. Um, and it really was because a thorough exam wasn't performed and she ended up undergoing two completely unnecessary surgical procedures that aren't benign and without, you know, potential sequelae. So um, that, you know, I've seen cases like that um, over the years, and that's really made me uh, want to get better at, at, you know, at physical examination and, um, you know, really want to use the history and the, and the exam together to, to help make diagnoses faster and with less uh, resource, you know, cost and utilization. Totally. And I hear you talking about how we can avoid surgeries and avoid, you know, unnecessary use of the healthcare system and also opportunities to look as amazing as, you know, Dr. Pete Sullivan on rounds where you just like just hone in on the answer. But besides those two, are there other reasons that you can kind of remind us, Andre, about why we should even care about the physical exam? Because, I mean, I think there's, you know, that button for the echo right there next to you whenever you're thinking about somebody with dyspnea that you can just click and that'll tell you the answers, right? Uh, you would think so, but not always the case. And I've seen that too. I've seen the echo uh, that's wrong when it's discordant with a physical exam and the physical exam is actually, you know, or, or you know, my favorite example to use is when... Um, potentially we diagnose uh, uh, acute pericarditis, uh, for example. The echo, a lot of times acute pericarditis is what we call dry pericarditis, so there's no pericardial effusion associated with it. And so the echocardiogram is going to look totally normal um, in, that, in that case. And, and the stethoscope is really what you need to hear, that, to hear that friction rub. I don't like to practice by ordering every test imaginable. Practicing in that way, I think, again, comes at a cost, a literal and figurative cost to patients because testing costs money. And then the figurative cost is because testing often begets more testing, sometimes begets invasive procedures, which come at cost to patients. So imagine if I order a CAT scan unnecessarily on a patient and it shows that lesion in the liver that's totally benign and doing no harm to the patient. And um, now all of a sudden we, we biopsy that, that you know, lesion and now they're bleeding to death kind of in the ICU fighting for their life. So, you know, all because of an unnecessary CAT scan. So there are the the upfront costs and then the hidden costs to practicing medicine with this shotgun approach or relying on technology, and um, and so I, I for me uh, I like to be back at the basics and um, you know ninety percent of of diagnoses can be made with the basics. Well, that got dramatic real fast as soon as that person started bleeding. So, <laughs> but point point made, point received, and I just I wonder, Andre, because there are a lot of challenges and that come up with focusing on the physical exam. I mean, I can imagine one is time and whether kind of it's Molly in this case or someone you know in their uh, other clinic, rheumatology clinic, even there's just not often enough time to um, give the physical exam the power it needs. And so I just wonder, are there particular kind of barriers that uh, are frequently cited to you or that you have encountered or even mistakes that you have seen people make in kind of the physical exam world and how you overcome them? That's a great question, Erin. And let's start by addressing the first concern that you raised, which was which was time, because uh, that's a common one. Um, I would actually argue that um, the approach that I take is actually much more efficient um, and will will save time. And the approach that I'm getting at is this sort of hypothesis-driven approach to uh, working up patients or to diagnostic reasoning. Um, you know, I don't advocate for, you know, the same way I don't advocate for ordering every test imaginable right off the bat. I also do not advocate for um, doing a head-to-toe physical examination on every patient that you see. Or, you know, when it comes to history, doing a, you know, a really long review of systems on every patient. I've always found that to be kind of a waste of time. Um, sometimes you have to because you have no, no leads. But what we want to do is we want to take leads as they're coming in. And as we're formulating hypotheses, um, you know, as I'm walking into the room to see that patient with shortness of breath and I see that wide pulse pressure, I'm automatically generating hypotheses. And in that case, it was limited uh, at that time. It was limited to aortic regurgitation. But now I'm going to be armed with, OK, I'm going to be looking specifically. I'm going to be listening for that diastolic murmur of AR. But I'm also going to be asking uh, very specific questions about alcohol use and other risk factors for, for uh, high output heart failure like thyrotoxicosis. I'm going to be feeling for that goiter. So really, when you when you take the hypothesis driven approach, it's much more efficient, 
because you're 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 looking for specific findings on exam and you're not just you know doing a head to toe thing hoping to stumble upon a clue you're specifically looking you're listening to the heart and diastole listening for a murmur there you're specifically feeling the thyroid in that case i don't feel every you know thyroid of every patient that i interview or examine so it's very hypothesis driven and in that way i think it's actually a time saver uh, rather than a time uh, consumer. Um, and, and, you know, it's really saved me a lot of, uh, a lot of time. It saves, saves patients time too, because when you can use the exam to arrive at a diagnosis, another barrier that I would say uh, that I would bring up is, you know, this idea that this, this sort of misconception, you know, that students have where, where they're being told that the physical exam is, is useless or worthless, and we're just going to order an echo, we're just going to, you know, order a CAT scan anyway. So don't don't bother even bringing your stethoscope into the hospital. There, you know, I've read articles where they, they talk about, you know, stethoscopes belonging in museums, uh, an article written by somebody at, at my own institution, actually, not too long ago, where they, where well, they made that. I have to say, the age of my stethoscope, it might need to be in a museum because <laughs> I definitely need to like re-up on, on a new stethoscope. But go well, on. I'm that's, go on. <laughs> that's funny because I actually, I'm, I'm totally into uh, collecting medical instruments from, from, you know, years past. I have a stethoscope from uh, the 1800s. Um, I have, I have this phonocardiograph machine you know, you know, in textbooks where they show the shape of a murmur. Well, I actually, so Pete Sullivan and I were talking one day I'm like, man, we, that's what they used to do is they used to look at phonocardiographs when they didn't have echoes and stuff. And so I said, man, I, we, we got to get an, a phonocardiogram. We, we I want to, I want a machine that will make phonocardiograms. So we looked and looked, couldn't find one. Then one day one popped up on eBay and, uh, and the guy who was selling it just, he, you know, he's, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea if this works. I don't even know what it is. I just know it's from the 1950s and it's this thing called a phonocardiograph machine. I said, well, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I'll take my chances. You know, I, I, I threw him a couple hundred bucks, whatever he wanted for it. I didn't know if it was going to work. It shows up one, one night, Saturday, it was actually Saturday night while everybody else was out at, you know, the clubs or the bars or whatever. I was at home <laughs> unwrapping my phone up, my 1955. Hooking yourself up. And <laughs> I, I did it on myself, exactly. Andre so was the only one who put a bid on that. <laughs> there was no other bid. They were like, we'll give it to you tomorrow. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I hook it all up and uh, and and it, and it totally worked. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. Actually, I use it a lot for teaching purposes because um, it's really nice for students to be able to not only have the auditory uh, kind of sort of uh, thing, but, uh, or sense, but they can also see it visually and it really helps them, you know, identify that as, oh, that's an S3 gallop or that's a systolic murmur or a diastolic murmur. So anyway, um, yeah, so, so, you know, people will say this and these are respected individuals. There's a cardiologist at our institution who is telling students that they, they didn't need to bother with a stethoscope. And, you know, I think that that is, the biggest misconception, I think for cardiologists, you know, where, where most of the time they see patients who are coming to them with a diagnosis already made, or they're, they, they have uh, at least one echocardiogram. I think maybe that's, that's, you know, that's, I still don't think it's okay, but, um, but maybe, maybe a passable um, perspective to have. But when you're talking to medical students who are totally undifferentiated and might become internists or ED physicians or whatever, where they're seeing patients for the first time who are coming with, in with dyspnea who don't have an echocardiogram, um, you know, I don't order an echocardiogram on every patient that I have with dyspnea. I do a good history and physical. And if it turns out that it, it's looking like COPD or pneumonia, I'm not getting an echocardiogram. But, um, you know, that, that the neck vein, become, the neck veins become really important in that case, because that'll, that'll tell you, is it, it is the heart involved or is it not? Um, you know, and so, so I think that that's the first thing that's a, a barrier uh, era is this this idea that medical students are, you know, this idea that they're being fed, that the physical exam is not helpful. So, of course, you know, they're not interested in learning it. Um, but uh, once they, you know, take our course or they walk around the wards with us and they see how powerful it is, you know, much like the experience I had with Pete, um, hopefully we, we turn that perspective around and, and, and you know, we, we, we knock that that barrier down. And maybe we could dive into just your approach to teaching the physical exam, since this is mostly geared towards educators and we all want to become better at teaching. Um, how do you kind of tailor your teaching to different developmental levels? Yeah, um, good question, Molly. So I, so, um, I really, I, I don't, I try to spend a lot of my time focused on the bedside. A clinical exam. I think that's what separates, you know, where I can really separate myself. I think we've all been through the lectures, uh, you know, as students, um, you know, we've all read the books. 
Um, and, you know, some of us have even practiced on one another, you know, in, in small groups uh, as med students. But that, you know, is something that uh, has to be translated at the bedside. You have to be able to translate that. And the analogy I always like to use is, you know, imagine if uh, you read a book on how to shoot a jump shot. You know, you've never played basketball in your life and you read, you know, 100 books in a year on how to shoot a jump shot. Well, you're still going to look like a clown when you go out there on the basketball court and you try to shoot a jump shot for the first time. You have to be, you have to have that, that experiential piece to it and you have to be at the bedside. And so I, that's where I try to focus is I really try to take them to the bedside so they can see and hear things for the first time. And these students are hearing diastolic murmurs for the first time. They're hearing gallops for the first time. You know, they're seeing things like Kussmaul sign. Um, I remember when I was a student, I was told that, oh yeah, you, you know, you might see Kussmaul sign once or twice in your career. I see it once or twice a week when I'm on service. I mean, it's a common sign. These things are common and they're there. We're just not looking for them or, or appreciating them. So that's where I really try to separate myself, Molly, is as I really try to take them to the bedside. And I, of course, I do uh, sprinkle in a didactic session on the whiteboard before because I think that that one-two punch of that kind of whiteboard teaching followed by the experiential bedside component is really, really powerful. And I think it just sets the stage for them. So I will, you know, what I'll do is, you know, and, and we're kind of at the mercy, the, you know, the, the, the thing with bedside teaching is we're at the mercy of what's in the hospital. We can't just snap our fingers and have aortic insufficiency available or have mitral stenosis available. So we kind of have to take what's there and then build a teaching session around it. So for me, I, um, and I branch out beyond what's on my team. So we might have a team of nine or 10 patients and maybe, you know, they have one or two, you know, physical findings that are, that are good or, or, or interesting, but sometimes we don't, we don't have much more than that. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll look around on other floors and I'll look at the cardiac floor, the neuro floor, and I'll go, I'll walk around, I'll make note of what I see in the chart and say, oh, this person might have a good finding. Um, you know, because they have aortic insufficiency. So I'll go and I'll confirm, oh yeah, they have Quinky's pulse and they have Corrigan's sign and um, they've got, um, you know, a Damusay sign, a water hammer pulse and this diastolic murmur. So I'll go and I'll confirm it and I'll talk to the patient and I'll sort of, you know, I'll, you know, mention that I, that I teach medical students and that they're learning about the physical exam. And would it be okay if I bring them by later? And I'll kind of get this list of patients uh, in, that are in the hospital, um, whether I'm taking care of them or not. And I take my team, um, what we call field trips, to go see you know patients that that aren't on our service to just broaden our our depth of and our range of of the things that we're seeing. Um, and uh, so let so let's say it is let's say I've identified an S three gallop or that's that's on the list. So that's kind of a transient sound. It's an extra heart sound that that you know we hear um, near S two. So I'll kind of give them a little bit of a didactic on transient heart sounds. Um, and I'll talk to them about the differential diagnosis of sounds that we might hear that are next to S2 or that are next to S1. Um, and the differential there is, is completely different. If it's a, a sound close to S1, we're thinking a split S1, an ejection click, um, you know, we're thinking an S4 gallop. If it's an extra sound near S2, we're thinking an S3 gallop, a split S2, opening snap, pericardial knock. And I'll kind of talk to them about all the strategies. And that's kind of the framework that I'll use in the, in the didactic session. And so I'll talk to them about the strategies, how we differentiate an S3 from a split S2 or an S4 from a split S1. And then, you know, we'll go and we'll, we'll, we'll have that talk, that conversation or that, you know, that chalk talk. And then we'll go to the bedside and we'll see the patient together. And um, I will I will let them sort of listen on their own unbiased. And, um, and it, you know, just everybody gets a chance to listen and then sort of share what what they heard. I'll often ask uh, students to sound out what they hear. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll start to narrow it down. Okay. Yeah. You hear this extra sound. Now, where do you hear it? Now they'll, they'll listen again. Oh, it turns out I hear this extra, this third sound. It sounds like it's closer to S2 than S1. Good. Now, where did you hear it best? Did you hear it best over the apex or the base? Cause that's going to start to narrow our differential even further. And they, they, you know, I, I didn't pay attention. I'm going to listen again. They listen again. They say, you know, I heard it best over the, over the apex. So, well, is it, a, what's the, now, how, how can you differentiate, you know, some of these sounds? Well, pitch is one of those features or, or qualities. So, you know, did you hear it best with the diaphragm, which is going to pick up higher pitch sounds or the bell of your scope, which is better for lower pitch sounds? Oh, it turns out that I'm hearing this better with the, with the bell. Well, you've just gone down a framework and identified an S3 gallop based on all of the features. And I tell them, I reiterate, this is why we, we describe where on the chest wall we're hearing this extra sound. And what the pitch is, um, you know, and is, if it's a murmur, is it a systolic murmur or a diastolic murmur? What, what is the shape of the murmur? 
all of these things help us narrow our differential and identify the, the lesion. And so that's kind of how it'll go at the bedside. And sometimes, you know, the patients love it too. Patients are sitting there, you know, oftentimes they're there for days or weeks in the hospital and they, you know, they love, they're entertained by this. They love being part of, um, you know, the, the teaching that goes on. Um, it's, you know, I've, I, 99% of patients I ask are all so happy to be part of this and they enjoy it. They say, I'll bring, bring another group of students by. We, we want to do this again. So, so that's kind of how I, how I go about it, uh, Molly. And I, I really um, like teaching at the bedside and I like these field trips, as I call them, to kind of, uh, again, broaden the scope of the things that we're seeing. Cause we're, again, we're at the mercy of what's in the hospital. Uh, but that's, that's sort of how I, how I go about it. I love that idea of, of expanding beyond the team because I can think back to, I work in the outpatient setting only now, but you know, on rounds, you, you already know this patient has an aortic stenosis murmur, you know, when you walk in the room and then you can tell yourself that you hear that. But I, I like your idea of kind of them going in blindly to a new patient and having to actually describe that out loud and then fit that into a framework to really understand why that sound is this diagnosis. And if you can have, if you're lucky enough to have patients that have, um, a, you know, you have one patient that's a split S2 and the other patient's an S3, so they can hear them back to back and really appreciate the differences. Or if you have a, one patient that has a systolic murmur and another patient with a diastolic murmur, it's really great for the students to hear those different uh, sounds back to back because then they start to really appreciate how they can tell, you know, what part of the cardiac cycle the sound is in. It really gives them that that sort of immediate juxtaposition that helps them differentiate those uh, those murmurs or sounds. It's really, really a nice way to do it. And you have been honing your skills for years now, and I'm sure have sort of these talks kind of pre-prepared and have these frameworks kind of in your head already. Um, for those of us who haven't had those that that time of preparation, is there like a good resource that you could recommend um, if you have you know, 15 minutes before you're going to be meeting with your learners, how, how could you kind of start to frame that for yourself? And I, I think your website, Physical Diagnosis PDX is a great resource. Are, are there some other ones that you might recommend? Thanks, Molly. Yeah, I like, so for a kind of an overall, um, where it touches on all of the exams and actually it gets into the history as well, uh, Sapira, The Art and Science of Bedside Diagnosis is an amazing book. Um, and if you can get the, I can't remember which edition it is, either the first or second, but it's the red one. Uh, that's a, an amazing book. I really highly recommend that. Um, then there are a bunch of uh, books that that really just, just discuss the cardiac exam uh, that I really like. And my favorite one there is um, by a guy named Marriott. It's called Bedside Cardiac Diagnosis. I think it was 92 or 93 uh, when that book came out. Um, and I really like it because it, the, the chapters are short. So it's, it's really digestible and um, he does a nice way of going through things. And uh, so those are the, the resources that I would recommend. There aren't a lot of books specifically on the, like the pulmonary exam. Um, there's certainly books on the neuro exam. Um, but I find uh, car the cardiac exam, there's a wealth of books uh, dedicated just to the cardiac exam. Um, and then, you know, the website, the nice thing about the website is it does, if you, there's a tutorial section on our website, which reads a lot like um, a textbook. Uh, the, the multimedia section is really what I think what separates it out because it has examples of all of these uh, multiple examples of, of a lot of these findings. And it really helps the learner bridge from the from the textbook, which you can only do so much with because you can describe what a murmur sounds like or you can show the shape of it like we talked about earlier. But actually hearing that murmur is really helpful for transitioning and, and acting as a bridge from that sort of lecture based stuff to the bedside. So that's what I really like about the multimedia section. But the tutorial section teaches it in much of the way that I described, where it talks about transient heart sounds. And, and here's your differential for transient sounds near S2 versus transient sounds near S1. And it has systolic murmurs and talks about shape. Um, and it talks about maneuvers and, and you know, other ways to differentiate the various murmurs. And then, um, you know, it kind of goes through things in that way. Um, so that's a kind of a, a nice way if you, if you want to um, sort of uh, go down this, this sort of style. Um, it's a, it's a nice resource to look at before you, you know, give that chalk talk to students. And Andre, I think you also linked to like the, your favorite phonocardiogram uh, for purchase on that site, right? So I think that uh, listeners have access to that um, technique as well. Oh yeah. 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 There are uh, some amazing digital stethoscopes that we use to record all of our heart sounds and lung sounds and, you know, bowel sounds and whatever sounds we're recording. And, uh, yeah, they're they're uh, they're they're really good, and, and as we talked about earlier, it's really helpful to have that visual in addition to the audio. Um, it really helps you kind of appreciate what you're what you're hearing at the bedside. 
I love that. And I wonder maybe, Andre, if you can think about kind of paring down a recipe for success and teaching physical exam skills, because I can imagine not all of us have a chance to go on these amazing field trips with you and have kind of access to both the one-two punch of the like 30-minute didactic and the kind of this experience with the patients who are in the room. And I wonder if there's, you know, a method that you have for more kind of like bite-sized teaching around the physical exam in certain situations, maybe it's a busy day on rounds or um, you suddenly decide that you want an outpatient career and decide to become a primary care doctor and you only have 15 minutes with a patient. So how do you kind of go about that or any have any approaches for kind of those type of time-sensitive teaching opportunities? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm a big fan of teaching in the moment. Um, I love kind of incorporating teaching on rounds, obviously in an efficient way because you don't want to drag rounds out forever. Um, but so if there is a patient, um, I like bedside rounds. I don't think that the presentation has to occur at the bedside, uh, but, you know, my team will usually present, you know, outside the room. But if it's a patient that has, a, you know, there's a question about volume status or a question about a murmur or a sound that they're hearing that, that may be abnormal um, or a lung exam or something like that or a neuro exam, I will encourage us to go together um, as a team and we'll we'll examine the patient together. And uh, that is, I think, an efficient way of doing it if you're you know if you're strapped for time because it has to be done anyway. it's 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 advancing patient care because we're we need to to do this exam. We have to sort this out. And at the same time, learners get to kind of appreciate, you know how how we do it and how we approach that particular exam. And they get to see things for the first time that they, you know, have never seen before. Um, you know, it's, oh, that's how you, that's how you evaluate the, the, the JVP, you know, that, or that's how you measure it at the bedside. And so, um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's kind of a real time approach that makes us or puts us in a situation where kind of, we're at the mercy of what's there, but there's so much over the course of two or three weeks on the wards or in clinic, we see so many things, um, especially in the wards, cause these patients are acutely ill, uh, maybe not, not as much in, in clinic with, uh, you know, with the acuity, but, uh, but it, these things will come out and, and the, you know, they, they will be there to be seen. And uh, so I like that real time uh, bedside teaching, you know, especially when, when time is tight. And then I, I, again, I just, I'm a big fan of igniting that interest and igniting that passion in the students because, you know, we're all, you know, lifelong learners. We all have to be motivated to learn. You know, intellectual curiosity is one of those things in, in, you know, in medical students. I think it's one of those unteachable things, really. But I think a lot of us have it. And that's why we went into medicine. We're really intrigued and excited about things. We're like detectives. I always liken internists um, to detectives because that's what we are. We're, we're kind of combing the scene of a crime and we're trying to identify clues. And we, we, we need to identify those clues in order to kind of put the story together in order to solve the crime. And so, um, you know, I, I think that uh, that excites me. I, I love that. I really, I really love it. And so, you know, just igniting that in students will give them that passion and that desire to get better at taking a history, get better at performing a physical examination, giving that them that excitement to learn independently and on their own so that they can explore these resources that we've talked about. I don't necessarily think all the teaching has to happen, you know, with us and the learners. I think a big part of being a good teacher is igniting that interest that's going to um, sort of enable that student to go off on their own and, and pursue those resources and, you know, listen to those sounds on, the, on our website or look at the, you know, neck vein videos and really get better at it. Um, and uh, so, so I, think, I think those are the things that I would really uh, focus on, um, you know, for me. And you mentioned kind of doing the exam together, and I'm sure that's kind of specific. You know, it may change depending on who's part of the team and who the patient is. But do you tend to model the exam first and describe what you're doing or have one of the learners do the exam and you correct them? Or how does that typically go? It's usually a mixture of both. If if we haven't done a particular exam together, I think it's very helpful for the learners to see how I approach for example, the jugular venous pulse exam, which I think is one of the most critical things that goes unutilized so often, you know, and uh, that, that to me, that's one of the most critical uh, exams. I don't want to call it a maneuver, but um, one of the most critical aspects of the exam as the jugular venous pulse exam. It's so powerful, so incredibly powerful. Um, I, so I was actually on service about a year ago. I was on the procedure service and we were asked to do a paracentesis on a patient who's on uh, the oncology service. And uh, so we walk into the room and, um, you know, I'm immediately struck by these dilated veins in the patient's temple area. And when he actually turned his head, you could see his all he had these dilated veins all over his cranium. And so, you know, I turned to his wife and I said, um, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice these veins. Have, have you noticed these? And she said that she had noticed them. 
And, you know, she's been, you know, they've popped up the last two, three months. She's asked many clinicians and she said, not only did they, were they unable to, to give her an answer as to what, you know, was the cause of these dilated veins, but they seemed disinterested in the question. They were very dismissive of it. Um, and, you know, it turns out that he had, you know, I, should, I wish I could show you the video is his, not only did he have these dilated veins on his, in his cranium, but his IJ was, or his EJ was totally engorged. It looked like a hose in his neck. And he had, you know, really elevated central venous pressure. And it turned out it was um, heart failure from, from his chemotherapy. You know, it could have been SVC syndrome from his, from his cancer. It could have been, you know, constrictive pericarditis. It could have been tamponade from his, from his cancer. So, you know, I, I guess that highlights a couple of things for me. Once again, we've moved away somehow from the fundamentals of medicine and patients are suffering. He was walking around for months without a diagnosis that should have been made or could have been made right away. And then, you know, secondly the jugular venous pulse exam is really critical. Um, and so, so, so back to, to the original question, um, you know, if we haven't gone over that exam together, I will, I will model that Molly and I'll show them my approach, um, to, to the jugular venous pulse. And I, there are three components to it. Again, I like to think in frameworks. And so my framework for the jugular venous pulse exam is you know, three, basically three, three components. One is identifying the pulse, which is really critical and, and very difficult for a lot of people. Uh, but that's step one. And that's, you know, differentiating it from the arterial pulse is really critical. And then once you've done that, now you can uh, perform components two and three, which are quantitative assessment. And that's, you know, identifying the jugular, jugular venous pressure, which is a surrogate of right atrial pressure. And then finally, the third component is qualitative assessment, which is actually looking at the waveform and being able to identify abnormalities. You know, the CV fusion or Lanchesi sign of, of tricuspid regurge or the Friedrich sign of constrictive pericarditis that we mentioned earlier. So that's kind of my approach. And I actually talked to them about all three, but I really harp on number one. I think that's the most important one is being able to identify the jugular venous pulse. And I talked to them about all the strategies at the bedside. First of all, patient position. Half the time you walk into a room and the patient's in a, not in a good position. Their neck is sort of flexed up against their chest and you try to move the back of the bed and it just moves their head up and down. So, you know, you really want them to be their head all the way up at the top of the bed so that you want their neck and their torso to be in the same plane so that when you move the back of the bed, it moves their neck and their torso as one unit. And you want the neck to be nice and flat and you want to observe the neck from a tangential vantage point. And this is critical for students. They don't know this. They're reading in the book and what they read is that, oh, you just look for a, for a pulsation. Well, you, the way you look is critical. And again, that, that's one of the things that doesn't translate from the, you know, from the lecture hall to the bedside unless you have somebody showing you. You want to look from a tangential or oblique perspective because that's when you're going to be able to appreciate the movement best. If you look at it perpendicular, which is the tendency, most people are like, oh, I'm just going to look at the neck from a perpendicular perspective. You will miss subtle movement. So, uh, you know, I show them how to look at the neck from a tangential perspective. And then I tell them, you know, the next step is to identify movement. And then from there, you want to know, is that venous or arterial? Because not all movement is venous. And then we, from there, we talk about the strategies, which are you know, the, the single arterial, you know, arterial pulse is a single outward pulsation. The venous pulse tends to be double undulating and the inward components are really what catch your eye. So we have this conversation at the bedside in front of the patient in real time as I'm doing this exam. And I think that that's really helpful for them. Um, so, um, and Andre, how does yeah. technology fit into that? Like, do you ever go by with the ultrasound as well or with other kind of you know, that same phonocardiogram that you have at your side always just kind of like, how do those things factor in? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to refer to the phonocardiogram as technology now because it's like 80 years old. But at one point, at one point that you're going to have. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Ira. I, I don't want to come across as anti-technology by any, you know, any means here. I, I'm really not. I'm, uh, you know, I think that technology is important when utilized properly. Um, and to, to your question, how do we utilize it? Yeah, there are ways to utilize it. Number one, you can calibrate or hone your physical exam skills if you have the benefit of, a, of an echocardiogram that's showing mitral regurge. Now you can go and you can listen for that holosystolic murmur at the apex. You can listen in the axilla to see if it radiates there. You know, you can try the hand grip maneuver and see if it increases in intensity with hand grip. You know, if you have the benefit of seeing a diagnosis of you know, aortic regurgitation on an echo. That's your opportunity. Go to the bedside, go look for, you know, Traub sign or Quinky's pulse or, you know, Corrigan's uh, pulse. That's your opportunity to, to calibrate your exam and to, um, to, you know, make sure that you're appreciating these findings that are there because next time when you don't have that echocardiogram, you're going to be ready to, to pick up that diagnosis or to make that diagnosis. So, yeah, so we do use technology in that way to our advantage. 
as we talked about earlier, we, we record these sounds. Obviously, we wouldn't have our website without technology. So we, you know, we use that to record and that helps students to not only, again, have that audio input, but also the visual at the same time. And that's really helpful for them. So those are the ways that we incorporate uh, technology. And again, it's nice to have that bridge from the, there's only so much you can do with description and with words. You know, I can describe what the neck veins, what Kusmal sign looks like. But, you know, it, a million words couldn't do what a video, what a video of Kusmal sign can do. So, uh, you know, and that's all technology. We're able to record this finding and we're able to put it up on this website at where, where, you know, clinicians all over the world can go and look at it and say, oh, that's, that's what Kusmal sign. I read about it, but that's what it looks like. And now they start to identify it, you know, at the bedside. I've had people give me that feedback that, you know, because they saw this finding on our site, they were able to identify it in one of their patients. And, you know, that's, 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 uh, that's exactly what it's there for. And, and uh, we're, we're so excited by that. The other thing that I think that example shows is your kind of um, mantra of anticipation is key, right? So if somebody comes in and they're trying to, they have a sense that there's going to be some sort of murmur or some sort of finding maybe on ultrasound, they're going in with that kind of um, expectation and looking for it and kind of able to hone their skills by, you know, not just doing a huge physical exam or going head to toe or kind of, you know, large organ systems, but maybe just specifically kind of what am I expecting to hear and how is that different from what I actually am hearing? Exactly. And how do you recap for learners to help them encourage knowledge retention? Do you use like a teachback method or any, any tips that you have for that? Yeah, I do like the teach back method. Um, uh, earlier, you asked a question, Molly, about uh, the approach at the bedside. Do I model it? Do I have them model it? And here's where I, you know, I mentioned that there's a mixture. And I started to talk about how I model it. And I didn't get to the other part, which is that, yeah, sometimes after we've done it the first time, I'll have them, you know, listen and, and kind of tell me what they're what they're hearing and describe it and describe how they're they're listening this finding. Um, so I do like that. And um, I like also you know, sort of quizzing them. And th that might be just, just sort of generating scenarios. Okay, you hear, you hear this diastolic murmur, it's decrescendo, it's over, you know, the left sternal border, you know, uh, what, what's your differential or what do you think that might be? Um, or we go to those, to, on those road trips or those field trips and we go to a bedside where they don't know what the diagnosis is. And I tell them, okay, you know, um, I want you to examine the lungs and I, you know, and, and I want you to demonstrate how you percuss. And I want you to uh, demonstrate the lung exam and then they'll do that and, and they'll, they'll, they'll tell me, okay, well, I'm, I'm percussing dullness over on this side. So, you know, my differential is going to be, you know, an effusion versus consolidation. It's like, okay, well, what, how, how are you going to differentiate the two? What do you want to do next? And they'll, of course, want to do tactile fremitus to differentiate the two. Uh, but yeah, so in those opportunities, those are opportunities for them to demonstrate what they, what they've learned. Um, and hopefully it's something that we've gone over before. So it's, it is a demonstration of retention of knowledge or something that we've gone over. Um, I generally won't put them on the spot if it's something that we haven't gone over together as a group. But um, that's a great opportunity for them to. I love it, too. And that's the other thing is for, for teachers. I, so I mentioned Pete Sullivan a couple of times. We are we are buddies. We learn from each other. We are still so excited about this stuff. He'll to this day, you know, just <laughs> yesterday. Uh, I had a patient uh, with um, mitral valve prolapse and she had absolutely textbook mid-systolic click. It was the most beautiful example that I think I've ever heard. And so, of course, what do I do? I text Pete. Anyway, so he'll go to the bedside. I won't tell him what it is. He'll listen. And then I, I see it. He starts to nod when he's listening. And then, okay, yeah, I hear it. Mid-systolic click and, you know, mitral valve prolapse. Um, so we do this to, uh, with each other and uh, it's an awesome technique to, you know, keep us honest. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm like, hey, man, I, I hear this thing. I, I think it's this, but I'm not sure. He'll come to the bedside. He'll corroborate or uh, refute what I think it is. He'll do the same. And just having two sets of ears listen um, is really helpful for calibrating our exam and for getting better at this stuff. There are parts of the exam that I really need to uh, beef up on. My neuro exam, I want to get better. So these are the techniques that I do with Pete. Um, I'll bring him to the bedside to, to you know, um, okay, here's here's how, you know, here's what I'm thinking about about this neuro exam or these reflexes or whatever it is. And, um, and you know, he, he will, um, again, re-demonstrate the findings or we'll do it together. And we're, we're so excited by this stuff to just see it together. Um, and, it, and it really, um, it helps us uh, both um, improve and grow our skills. Uh, so yeah, so that's what we do. Um, we, we do that a lot, uh, pretty frequently with each other. 
I just had a thought, which is that if you wanted to take your website to like level 3.0, you could have some sort of like ping to email subscribers and the subject line would be like, I got a heart for you. That's a great setup. Should we listen to some sounds and uh, maybe do it. tell you a little bit about case, but then have you kind of analyze and anticipate for us, Andre? What do you think? Sounds good. All right. Well, I just happened to have the case of this 27-year-old gentleman here who presents to the Cashlack ER with uh, a fever and some painful spots on his hand, his uh, actually both hands. And he's really excited because he gets to see you uh, to kind of work up what's going on for him. And uh, maybe should we uh, transition to you, Andre, telling us about your approach and how you kind of apply the framework and the tips that you told us about and then share some sounds. Absolutely. Ira. So I'm interested in these spots on his hands. And I re- the hands are an amazing resource, a uh, source of clues, um, you know, to help us help us make a diagnosis and solve a case. And here's an example where the hands may be, may be critical. So where, where are these, um, these spots located exactly on the hand? Sure. They're closer to his thumb area, kind of the okay. fleshy parts. Okay. So kind of the phenar uh, area, um, you know, that, and these spots are tender. Very tender. Okay. So, you know, uh, we're, we can start to formulate a hypothesis about what these spots might be. Obviously, you know, we, it'd be nice if we were at the bedside and actually visualizing these, these lesions, but, um, you know, in, in a young, young person coming in with fever and, uh, these, these sort of what you're describing as subcutaneous tender nodules in the phenar, you know, eminence area, that does make us uh, wonder about about uh, a, a certain diagnosis, and uh, you know, uh, could these be could these be Ozer's nodes? And if that's the case, you know, as we start to formulate a hypothesis, that's going to really hone our the, our history and our exam. So we'll want to know about risk factors for you know endocarditis in this case. So of course we'll get that we'll gather that history from the patient, and then we'll we'll continue to perform our exam with that in mind, with that hypothesis in mind. Um, so maybe we can we can listen to the patient's heart, and even before we do, Ira, we'll want to again utilize the principle that you just mentioned of of anticipation. So what does that mean? Well, um, it's a really helpful technique in medicine to anticipate. There's a famous saying: the 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 eyes can't see what the mind doesn't know, um, or in this case, the ears can't hear what the mind doesn't know. And what that is getting at is if you're not primed to hear a particular sound or feel a particular thrill or percuss a particular note, you may miss it. You know, it's very easy to miss these things, but when we're anticipating them, we're much more likely to appreciate them. And so if we are thinking about a a person with endocarditis, we have to think, well, what, what does that do to the heart? It destroys the heart valves and it leads to valvular lesions and not just any valvular lesion, but usually regurgitant lesions. So we're listening specifically for sounds that would be characteristic of mitral regurgitation aortic regurgitation, tricuspid regurgitation. Um, and so we, we want to uh, listen very carefully for those particular qualities. And maybe before we listen to this patient's heart, we can listen to kind of a normal heart just to, as a control. Maybe I'll just comment. So we hear the normal, we hear normal S1 and S2. We don't hear any extra sounds, whether transient or sounds with duration in either systole or diastole. So that's a normal heart. And now um, we're primed to hear uh, the heart of somebody that might have endocarditis. So we're listening for a regurgitant lesion. And this is what we hear. Great. So we, I think uh, we all identify that there is an abnormal sound um, in, this, in this patient's heart. And the question is, is what is that sound? And, and how can we narrow it down to figure out what the lesion is? Um, well, when I approach heart sounds, I think about, again, transient sounds. And those are sounds like S1 and S2 that don't have much duration to them. They're quick over quickly. Um, and then there are sounds with duration. Um, and this is a sound with duration. It has a length to it. This is a murmur. And so we, we, when, we, when we think about heart murmurs, the next question is, is, well, where is this occurring in the cardiac cycle? Is this a systolic murmur or a diastolic murmur? And um, what I'm hearing is a systolic murmur. 
Um, and uh, so that narrows the differential quite a bit. Um, you know, we can uh, really then think about things like mitral regurgitation, aortic stenosis, tricuspid regurgitation, and things like aortic regurgitation or mitral stenosis are, you know, not consistent with a systolic uh, murmur. So our, our differential is beginning to narrow. It's a systolic murmur. And we can even go further than that, uh, Molly. We can say, well, what's the shape of the murmur? And that's why all of these things are so important. We learn about intensity, shape, location on the chest wall. All of those things are factors that play a role in narrowing the differential diagnosis. And in this case, I hear a, a plateau-shaped murmur. It's holosystolic. It starts right with S1. It goes all the way through systole to S2. Um, and the diastole is quiet. But I hear a holosystolic murmur that's, that's flat in shape or plateau-shaped. And then that further narrows our differential. That's not consistent with something like aortic stenosis, for example, which has shape. It's a crescendo-decrescendo murmur. So this tells us we're, we're either uh, hearing this is, it could be mitral regurgitation, it could be tricuspid regurgitation, or it could be a ventriculoseptal defect. And that's really the differential for a holosystolic murmur. And where are we, uh, where are we, where are we hearing this, this uh, sound, this, this murmur best on, on, the, uh, on the patient, Molly? So we are hearing this at the apex. Oh, well, that's really helpful. Of that differential, um, we would expect tricuspid regurg to be best heard at the left lower sternal border. Ventricular septal defect is also, you can hear that anywhere, but it's generally over the, you know, probably loudest, the left lower sternal, excuse me, the left lower sternal border. Um, mitral regurg, on the other hand, is best heard over the apex, and we would expect that to radiate into the axilla. And so this is seeming very consistent with mitral regurgitation, which is a, a lesion that we would expect um, to occur as a result of endocarditis. So the patient has developed endocarditis of his mitral valve. So that's sort of where we're at. And then uh, if you guys want, you can well, say... Well, maybe we can talk yeah. about what happened to this patient. So it sounds like we heard this incredible murmur at the apex area that we defined as this uh, holosystolic plateauing um, or kind of plateau uh, in duration. And um, now we have some changes associated with this person's clinical case, which is that they are describing a little bit of... Um, chest discomfort. Uh, in addition, first it was just the hands and the kind of spots that were painful. And now it, they're noticing that um, when they uh, kind of are in bed, that they're having some new kind of chest discomfort, chest pressure. So that is a very unique sound. Uh, there's nothing else that sounds like this. This is a uh, pericardial friction rub, and it has three components to it. Not all friction rubs do. This one does, uh, two in diastole, one in systole. But the friction rub is it's categorized as a sound with duration. So it's uh, one of the, the sounds that's like, it's, it's the not, one of the few non-murmurs that is uh, categorized that way in terms of the sounds with duration. And um, it's very unique in that it, it, it kind of has a, a scratchy uh, quality to it. Some people describe it as kind of creaking leather, leathery sounds. Others describe it as um, kind of walking on, on fresh snow, that kind of crunchy, scratchy sound. And then another description that I've heard that I really like is a, imagine a balloon and it's, it's a wet balloon and you're kind of ru running your hand, uh, you know, over the surface of a wet balloon. It kind of uh, creates that really unique sound. And, and so this is a pericardial friction rub. And this patient, based on the history that uh, Ira described, this patient has developed pericardial involvement of his endocarditis and he has acute pericarditis as a result. And this is a good opportunity to kind of highlight how important it is to do this daily physical exam. We're not just doing it to, to cross off check boxes um, and go through the motions. Patients can evolve. Their exam can evolve sometimes over days, sometimes over hours, sometimes over minutes. So it's really important to do these serial exams. And we've picked up a very important clue or, 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 or feature of this patient's case, which is that his, his infection has now moved to involve the pericardium. And by the way, the echocardiogram might not show this at this time because it could be dry pericarditis. And the echocardiogram, there's no echocardiographic finding of, of inflammation of the pericardium without an effusion. And so, yeah, this patient now has uh, pericarditis as a result of his endocarditis.
And speaking of evolution, uh, so it sounds like the next day you go see this patient, in addition to him having this chest pain, he now has sudden onset shortness of breath. He's having trouble breathing. It looks like he's breathing really fast and just looks very, very uncomfortable. And uh, your astute um, team decides to take a listen to his heart. And uh, here's this sound. Uh which one do you want me to play here? The, there, there's no sound for this. Why don't you describe? <laughs> exactly. Describe. There's no sound. <laughs> she got okay. it. That gotcha. Was good, man. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Ira. That was awesome. So the sounds are really hard to appreciate. They're, they're distant. You might you might call them distant um, or, or or really not not audible at all. And um, we um, are now uh, dealing with with evolution of acute pericarditis um, into uh, into potentially Beck's triad here, one of which is, is distant heart sounds, another of which is hypotension if the patient's becoming presyncopal. And then what do the neck veins look like? They're elevated. Yeah, they're absolutely elevated. So that's Beck's triad of, uh, uh, of course, describing uh, cardiac tamponade, um, which, which is a life-threatening emergency. And uh, because of our astute you know, team and physical exam skills, and our serial exams, we were able to make that diagnosis right there at the bedside without any delay and get the patient the pericardiocentesis that he, that he needs to save his life. So again, I really like that case. It highlights the evolution of the exam, the importance of the stethoscope, and um, the importance of anticipating and, and uh, the key of anticipation. Well, thank you, Andre. That was, that was a great quick case to kind of demonstrate these resources of, of heart sounds that you can find on the Physical Diagnosis PDX website. And we will link to that. And there are wonderful tutorials that go through lots more. So even if you don't have that case in your hospital at this moment, you can go through those and, and learn at your own pace. And just to wrap us up, Andre, I wonder, do you have any main take-home points for our listeners? I know we covered a lot today and a lot of exciting practical tips, but things that you want to make sure the listeners take go home with or take away. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys again for having me on the show. Uh, Molly and Ira, I really appreciate it. It was an uh, awesome discussion. Um, and uh, yeah, to, to summarize or to, to a couple take-home points, um, I would say that, um, again, it starts with understanding how powerful the exam is and can be and understanding that history and physical exam are all you need to make most diagnoses and will will really uh, save patients literal cost and figurative cost. And again, I like that the I really like the analogy that we are detectives and we are we are, you know, sort of combing the crime scene. And I always I always sort of define diagnostic reasoning as the acquisition and use of clues to make a diagnosis, but I always emphasize acquisition. And uh, that's so critical because, you know, we're, we're kind of primed as medical students and residents. We take these standardized tests and the standardized tests really create a fantasy world where they give us all the clues that we need right there on a silver platter to make a diagnosis. And so a lot of students and residents falsely have this belief that if they ace their boards, they're going to be, you know, great clinicians. Well, that's just not not true because really the, the, the diagnostic process is a, starts with knowing what information is important to acquire from a case and then having the skills to acquire that information. And then the step three is synthesis. And that's all you have to do on standardized tests. They'll tell you the patient has a high arch palate, arachnidactyly, and a chest wall deformity. And all you have to do then is, is just sort of synthesize those clues and make a diagnosis. Any robot or machine can do that. But the best clinicians are the ones who are at the bedside identifying arachnidactyly or identifying the high arch palate. So that's the, the biggest takeaway uh, that I uh, really would like uh, folks to, t to take from this discussion is that it's the onus is on us as detectives, as internists to acquire the clues at the bedside that we are that are needed to make the diagnosis. And so, you know, the physical exam is a really rich source of clues. And that's the biggest thing that I think uh, we should take away is, is that these these findings are there uh, to be discovered. We just have to we have to be on the lookout for them and we have to anticipate um, seeing them. Fantastic. And anything else that you'd like to plug? I don't think so. All right. Well, if you're not going to do it, Andre, <laughs> I'm going to plug it for you. So Andre also has a book out, The Frameworks for Internal Medicine. And I think that's something else that we can link to in the show notes for sure. And making sure that's not just the website's incredible, but there's also a um, hard copy version of kind of many of the frameworks and, and key physical exam points that go along with it um, that people can just actually hold and have. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you both. I really enjoyed it.
So Ira, what did you, what really stood out to you? What are you going to take home from this episode? Thanks, Molly. I had such a blast listening to Andre talk about and share his passion for teaching the physical exam. I think for me, I get worried about the amount of time that I have to do a kind of bedside teaching or physical exam teaching. And I like that Andre reminded us that we don't have to do a full exam, that we need to have kind of some anticipation based on the history about what we're going to listen for or what we're going to try and see. And that maybe we don't need to do a full neuro exam or a full exam every single time, but focus in on certain organ systems and really hone our skills there. And so just kind of being, giving yourself the permission that you don't need to do a full review of systems. You don't need to do a full physical exam, but just really hone in on particular parts. I think that is a great pearl. And I I really appreciated his, in that same vein, helping us as educators think about helping our learners anticipate and kind of the idea that we can't see or hear or find the finding that we really need to find unless we kind of anticipate it or have a differential that would make us want to look for that. Um, so that is something I want to incorporate into my teaching and I also really liked his modeling of having a near peer mentor of someone else who's really enthusiastic about learning about physical exam. And I think a couple of our other guests have recommended that sort of in, in other situations of having someone that can give you feedback and that you can learn from. And I, I think having that person for physical exam is a great recommendation as well. I love that, Molly. Can you be my uh, accountability buddy for hypothesis-driven physical Absolutely. exams? Absolutely. I will text you and you can run across the street, just drop clinic and be like, yeah. I have to go look at the cervix. <laughs> I will run over. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto, Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio and our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram, John Ong on Twitter, and Tima Karganoff on our website. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krasinovska. Thank you so much for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblind. <laughs>